Welcome to Geek Speak. I'm Lyle Troxell. Celebrating our 20 years of being on air, of me hosting the show, I decided to contact some people that I haven't had an episode with in a while and chat with them about geeky things. So today, right now, we have Greg Merkley. He's in Canada. He's an integrated technician. He does uh, physical security installations for large corporations. He's currently traveling. You're north of Victoria. Is that right, Greg? That's right. I'm up in a little town called Campbell River. Are you staying in hotels? I am. So unfortunately, I've got crappy Wi-Fi. <laughs> okay, well, if we if you drop out, that's why. And Greg, is that stressful to be traveling in, in this time of COVID? This is literally my first time traveling since uh, the whole COVID epidemic began. So I don't know that I'd call it stressful, but it's definitely a little bit different. We also have on the call Didi Hubbard. Didi was a regular with me on GeekSpeak for years. We both met at UCSC, and Didi is a software engineer focusing mostly on Python. Is that right, Didi? Yep, uh, Python at uh, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. And so I'm assuming you're mostly staying in. You're not out and about like Greg is right now. I, I mostly sit here between one wall and another wall at my desk. That sounds like my job description, too. And one of the uh, continuing long-term geeks, Miles Elam, is also on with us. Hi, Miles. How's it going? I'm pretty pretty good. I mean, in all in all, I'm able to stay home, and that's okay. And other things are not so great. But it is wonderful to talk to all three of you. I wanted to start a little bit with Greg, because Greg's participation on the show was very different than most people. Years ago, and maybe, Greg, you can remind me what year it was, I went out on air and said, hey, we need titles for every episode. Can you help? And you stepped in and started titling our episodes. When was that? Uh, as far as I can tell, looking back, uh, March 2013 was the first time I, I sent in a contribution. That would have been, yeah, that would have been a patented billboard show, Skydiving Rats, live. <laughs> can you, can you uh, tell me wh- why did you title that sh- the show that? And why were we doing, why did we do show titles like this? Uh, well, first off, uh, that was called that specifically because you guys were doing a live video. Um, I think the first time you guys had tried to do live video. And then, of course, the skydiving rats was a story about them uh, dropping rats onto an island in the middle of some the South Pacific to uh, uh, try to kill snakes, I think it was. <laughs> And why do I do it? I don't know. It sounded like a good idea at the time. And then a few weeks later, I had another idea for one and submitted that. And then after that, it just kind of became a regular thing. And it basically, you're taking kind of like words from the show and mixing it. But it's, it's kind of a um, mashup of title. Yeah? Yeah, exactly. Try to try to pull out some of the ideas from the show and, and make it all make sense. And I think that your titling of shows actually ended up me making – I started making images, which were also kind of matching the the show at some level, uh, kind of a, a grab bag of the titles, we, the things we talked about. Do you have some favorite episode titles? Oh, I was just digging through. I hadn't had a whole lot of chance. but Yeah, I, uh... kind, of, I kind of surprised all of you on the show. <laughs> exactly. Uh, one that I saw as I was quickly whipping through was uh, Waze Reports, Cloudy with a Chance of Paranoia. Do you remember anything about that one? Uh, not off the top of my head, to be totally honest. Yeah. 
And that's actually still from 2013. If I whip through 2014, I'll probably find a couple of others, but you probably don't want to listen to me scanning through. <laughs> you really you really got, um, I mean, you were basically on every week listening to us. And of course, you, when we were started this, 2013, we were on air. We were a podcast as well. But mm-hmm. uh, of course, you could get to us online because the station was streaming and all that. So, But you, I don't think... You've been, we've met once or twice in, in person when you come to California, but yeah. you were always the kind of remote silent partner uh, for the, <laughs> uh, the shows. I like that description. <laughs> we've had a lot of people that have participated in the, in the background, if you will, uh, that haven't been on air very much. So you've been on air a couple of times, um, but your dedication to doing this and also the friendship we, we formed has been pr- kind of amazing. It's been um, totally a pleasure. I thought it'd be kind of fun to talk about like, what you do in physical security. Like you're, I know you do installations of wiring and cabling and things like that. What's your actual job look like? And, and I'm assuming that's why you have to physically go to different locations. Yeah. What we do is, uh, generally for large commercial installations. Um, I'll use the example I'm at right now. It's, uh, basically the same size as the Walmart, different, different name, of course. And uh, what I do is get the cameras and the door card swipes and the alarm systems and the networking type stuff all working together so that the end user can have things really easy. They just take their card, swipe it at the door when they walk in in the morning, turns off the alarm, sometimes turns on lights, that sort of thing. Is that uh, the software that runs that kind of installation? Is that bespoke or are there like a couple name brands that everybody uses? Um, there are about five major, I would say, brands out there that are being used. And uh, then, of course, the problem is, is almost all of them are um, proprietary systems that you then have to make talk to each other. <laughs> so the camera system isn't the same as the card access system, etc. But you kind of want them connected so that you can, when a badge was scanned, you can also see what camera was on at the time. So you can see if it was the right person. Things exactly. Like, that, right? like if they've got a, a security desk, when someone swipes a card, it'll bring up a camera in a, a window for them to see that the person is actually going through that door. Dee Dee, Miles, have either of you done um, home installation, kind of home automation type stuff? I avoid it. <laughs> Very little. Just some push buttons, you know, push button remotes to turn on and off lights that don't have a dedicated wall switch to them or that are on the other side of the room. That's that's even more than I have, would you believe or not? <laughs> Greg, you don't do home automation stuff even though you're an expert on it? I don't. Uh, I, I've got a really nice stereo and video system, but uh, that's about it. <laughs> so your key, your front door has a like key with brass and all that? Exactly. And Didi, you said you try to avoid it. Why? I mean, I, I've run Ethernet cable uh, not really expertly, sometimes under the carpet, uh, cause I, I have that apartment lifestyle, but, uh, I, I, I joke with my dad cause he, he wanted to get like a, an Amazon echo or something. And I said, uh, Hey daddy, do you, you know how all these years you taught me about COINTELPRO and, uh, the FBI, you would just want to invite Amazon into your house like that. What was his take on that? He's, he instantly got it. You just have to figure out how to speak uh, boomer language, I guess. <laughs> or black boomer in this case. Yeah. Uh, I have Google Home and Amazon Echo devices. Do they talk to each other? They don't, not intentionally. And they're sp- like splattered all over the place. They're just 
All the music system is using um, Google stuff. I like it a lot. And yeah, it's definitely a decision to be very transparent to the tech companies. Not sure it's a good idea. I, I do use Siri a little bit to remind me of things and to set timers. Do you have the voice activation? Do you have to push the button? Uh, push button. And of course, that means that it's not theoretically listening all the time. Like my phone, I actually have Siri on. So if it hears a command word, it actually starts doing things. I've seen that happen to hilarious effect um, on people that are streaming on Twitch, where uh, someone changed their username to like L-O Siri, Azuri or something. And then they said the the username and it, it triggered the uh, the phone. And yes. they were they were doing a game where you have to hold your thumb on the screen for a ridiculously large, long amount of time. And, and it broke their game, right? It broke their game. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically on Twitch, it's like very common when someone uh, joins you, gives you a gift, joins your channel, the person that's hosting actually thanks you. And so you're saying that the person that did that form their their name the username to match a command for siri which messed up the game yeah why i mean i've heard i heard about that story and such but why is it fun to watch someone hold their phone like that's what the game is right you gotta push your finger on the phone they were doing it for charity so a lot of people watch anything for charity what operating systems dd what operating system is your primary for your main development machine uh, sort of mixed uh, between uh, the latest Mac OS and the last one. Now, it's, this is like a test. It's Catalina and Hi Sierra. Did I get that right? I Man, think so. I, Catalina yeah. and the one before it is Mojave. Yeah, you have to take my geek card away. I'm sorry. <laughs> I failed. I stopped keeping track as well. I just know the next one's going to be Big Sur. I kept track of the cats. I only know because Catalina has caused me nothing but tr- uh, trouble, and the one that last worked well was Mojave. So that transition is burned into my mind now. Does that mean, Miles, that you're on Catalina, but you really want to be on Mojave? Uh, it depends. the The work laptop is still kind of shaking out the Catalina bugs. My personal laptop is actually running quite nicely on Catalina. On Catalina, yeah. And that personal laptop's the kind of rebuilt one, right? Where you have other. Yeah, hardware. that's the one with the custom hardware with the extended storage unit in it. The work one is completely stock and gives me no end of trouble. And Greg, what about you? What uh, OS do you use? Um, Windows machines, except for obviously my iOS devices. Is that because you've always been a Windows user? Yeah, pretty much. And then when I look at the prices of Macs, I say, do I really want to spend that kind of money? <laughs> well, you do have an iPad, which, was spent, which you spent some money on. Well, actually, I got that with Air Miles. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm also on Mac and most likely the most recent uh, version, though it took me a while to get over to Catalina uh, for obvious uh, reasons. You know what I left out? Hmm. One of my most obvious operating systems is like, using all of the Oracle Enterprise Linux in the cloud. Let's spend so much time on that. It's ridiculous. Do you use? Do you do dev machines in, in the cloud infrastructure? We have uh, different tendencies. So we have our sandbox pre-prod and production tendencies. So we spend a lot of time deploying, checking, validating, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I've got another one for you all. Your favorite browser. Didi? I switched to Firefox maybe like two years ago. Everyone said that it was getting to be so much faster than Chrome even. Mm-hmm. And Chrome was starting to feel a little heavy for me at that, at that moment. And uh, when, I, when I flipped over, it also had built-in tracking protection. So I was able to stop with the mismatch of ad blockers and other things and just use that. And it was been really, really nice. Oh, 
Uh, Miles? I actually still bounce around. I have uh, Chrome on my work laptop, and I use that mostly because it has profiles, so I can bounce back and forth between the stuff I'm doing for contracting for a company versus personal stuff versus stuff for um, the company that I actually work for. Can you describe profiles? I do the same thing on Chrome. So, uh, profiles is, you'll have a little icon in the top right-hand corner, so you'll set it up so that when you choose which profile you're using, you have two different browser windows open, let's say. And one of them has all of your bookmarks and all of your settings and all of your cache for one persona, if you will. Uh, like, for example, my personal persona. So it would have uh, my access to my personal Gmail and stuff like that. And that's how it's logged in. And then another one for the project that I'm working on. And so I don't have to worry about which one am I logged into? When I, um, If I go to Google Drive, if I go in one window, that's my personal one, I see my personal Google Drive. And if I go into the one for the company, I see the company Google Drive. I don't have to worry about logging off and logging back in or going in and saying, no, switch, switch which user that is. Yeah. Do, do you know if Firefox supports that? Uh, they have containers. I use containers on Firefox. So I can have... Uh... We can use the, the no no profile, just whatever. Uh, and when I go to certain links, it automatically knows to go into that container. So I have a Google container. I've uh, got like a personal container, financial container, things like that. So it's you could set them up similarly where you had two different profiles or two different containers for Google, right? Yeah, so you, you could launch uh, new tabs. And so you can also have your tabs next to each other um, mm -hmm. with the containers, which is nice. So we, like I think it started life as a Facebook container, and now they just have multi-general purpose containers. Part of this, of course, is that because of this, the they're kind of like incognito windows in the sense that they don't, your Facebook profile a container rather, um, doesn't have, you don't do other things like go to Google with it. So from Google and Facebook, you don't look like the same person, if you will. True. Although it has fewer restrictions as most pr uh, private browsing has. So uh, I tried to start up this uh, recording in Firefox in a private window uh, just to make sure everything was nice and clear. And it didn't work because of some of the uh, the, the local, like, uh, local DB storage recording. Right. We're using Zencaster, and Zencaster records a local copy of the files and then uploads those slowly. The benefit of that is you get a higher level recording that you can use later for editing. I just tweeted about not talking about audio recording on podcasting as a tip, <laughs> but of course, but of course, this is a tech show, so that's okay. Uh, I'll, I'll allow it. Greg, what about your browser choice? Do you have to use IE? Nope. No, thank goodness. Although sometimes really old stuff, yes, I'm required because it's the only thing that it works in still. But uh, I'm Firefox and have been since it was Netscape. So, Miles, did you switch to Chrome when you started working Google? You just had to? Uh, no, no one made, uh, made you. It's just that all development was really done with it and everything was tailored to it. I still had Firefox installed and I would test against it and see when you know things went wrong, um, which it it happened, but it was actually pretty rare. The browsers were uh, getting very close to parity at that point for basic features, at least the ones we were using. I still use Firefox, and I actually still use Brave in addition. Um, Brave, I just I kind of like in general um, with mm -hmm. the ad blocker and, and how well that works, although for, Firefox has gotten a lot better in that regard. Uh, 
Chrome is still the best for debugging JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I use for client-side debugging and also for Node uh, development. And uh, Firefox is still the best debugger for dealing with UI stuff. like uh, Firefox? Yeah, like CSS Grid in Firefox is, is, a, is wonderful. It's so much better than... For debugging it. Well, for actually even making the grid in the first place, like for if you're doing UI development for the web uh, within the browser itself, Firefox is the best. Okay, so you're saying UI development, Firefox, but debugging JavaScript client-side code, Chrome. Yes. Interesting. Uh, although JavaScript does it, or Firefox does it reasonably well, but uh, yeah, Chrome does have the edge. It does do a lot, th- a lot of things better, especially the profiler. Yeah, and it is true that a lot of ex- examples of using Node debugging where you put breakpoints in it and actually use the debugger, you can use Chrome's debugger for that, which is kind of nice. I don't end up using that. I just end up, use up um, using Visual, Microsoft Visual Code's debugging tools for Node. Uh, your, your, your debugging stack is just, it's enviable. Uh, so in some instances, I have to like, do a whole deploy before I can really test anything. Because you're po- talking about Python development? Well, uh, a mix of Python and Java, but uh, just making sure that it actually works in region. Mm-hmm. We have similar similar issues at Netflix when you're developing the, the Java backend code. To actually execute that code, you pretty much need to be in an instance of AWS. At least I, my experience has been. I never work in that space, though. I'm always doing UI development, and our backend for front-end for UI development at Netflix is now uh, Node. So I run Node instances locally, and it is really, uh, I've got to say, quite a nice development environment experience why isn't Didi and miles why aren't you using safari i always forget it exists <laughs> <laughs> because it is behind in terms of uh some of the features with regard to css and uh and the like and some of the apis are a little bit behind uh i do use it it's funny i actually use it for um database development uh because I work with PostgreSQL, the uh, one of the admin tools for that uh, that's sanctioned by the community is PG Admin Four, and with that, I've set it up that when I launch PG Admin Four, it launches in Safari. And the reason I do that is just because it's a different browser, and I don't get it confused with all the other windows, and I can just click to it and get to <laughs> my yeah. uh, SQL window. PG Admin Four, what's it running in? Uh, PG Admin Four is written in Python. Uh-huh. Uh, and so it runs as a service, and then you have a web. So you're running a local server that you can connect to, which when it first came out, I was very much not a fan. Uh, I thought it was doing some really odd things. And you know, uh, at the same time, as I started doing more Docker work, I realized, oh, wait, if I have a Docker Compose file, I can create my database, I can create my app, and then I can create a Docker instance of PG Admin 4. And so I can just ship like a ready to go dev environment that has the database and the tool to be able to access that database. Is that how you're running it then? And so that's how I'm running it most of the time now. All right, let's go ahead and talk about uh, some geeky things that are kind of on our mind right now. Didi, before the show, you were mentioning that you were doing memes in bed. Can you please explain what you mean? Well, when you put it like that, it sounds kind of weird. <laughs> viewing, uh, viewing memes. <laughs> yeah. So if you haven't noticed, we're in a pandemic and that can have various effects on your general mood. And it 
it's really important to find ways to wind down uh, at the end of the day so that you can actually make it all the way through the, the night in a nice deep sleep. So um, kind of me and my, my partner, Jessica, we have uh, kind of like, an, like a new ritual where if we need to wind down, we can like spend some time on TikTok, uh, go over like various memes we found on Twitter or on Instagram. And that has actually really helped, like, you know, just find some chill at the end of the day, mm-hmm. uh, except that the Wi-Fi was terrible, terrible in the, the, the bedroom because it's on the other end of the house from where the Wi-Fi router was. You're doing that too? I have the exact same problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I tried I tried various things. So I've, I've had this router. It's in, um, it's like a 802.11 AC. So I guess it's, what do they call it? Like Wi-Fi 5 now. They keep changing things and getting old and like, get off my lawn. But yes, Wi-Fi 5. Uh, when we when we moved to a place that was longer, uh, it, it just wasn't, it's just not enough. So at first I tried a Wi-Fi extender. Don't try a Wi-Fi extender if you're a nerd. Just don't do it. Geeks shouldn't try this. Why is that? It lowers your performance, but I'll, I'll leave it to Greg to tell you. Oh, I completely concur with that because of the fact that it's taking the packets and then having to retransmit them. So it receives, processes, sends them back out. Your bandwidth drops really badly. It worked fine from the geodesic dome. Oh, wait. Well, it worked better than nothing. (laughs) At least go with a mesh network. (laughs) Yeah, Miles and I worked on – we lived on a property together for a while, and his house didn't have network, so we cobbled together something. I was very proud of it. Weren't you proud of it? I was indeed, yeah. Yeah. Um, but wait, Greg, are you saying that mesh network is going to be different than a Wi-Fi repeater? They they handle the they handle the bandwidth much better in a true mesh network. Are there true mesh networks out there? And is this what Didi's about to suggest? <laughs> there are, but they're not cheap. Um, our favorite company, uh, at least uh, you use them as well as I do, Ubiquity. Mm-hmm, I do. Um, they have a uh, mesh system out now that's uh, looking pretty interesting. So uh, the thing that actually fixed it, I bought into the Ubiquity universe. <laughs> <laughs> what unit you did you get? I got the the Dream Machine. So it's a little white Apple-esque capsule looking mm-hmm. thing. And uh, it, it's actually all by itself is covering the entire apartment now. This thing is actually designed to have uh, other nodes in the mesh, right? But it can do standalone. Yeah, I yeah, I I could I could expand on my network if I ever wind up like, uh, you know, becoming a real adult and buying a house or something and getting more nodes, uh, and build out the build tr- out build out into a true mesh. But oh uh, no, if if you own your house, just lay the cable. <laughs> either either put the the Cat Six A around or put in fiber. Well, I, I would definitely do that, but there are things that are wireless, like your phones, which you use in bed to look at memes. <laughs> They're hard to plug in, I hear. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't even know what the dongle for that for the iPhone is right now. But that's why you put a, a another router that you know comes down. You get the Wi-Fi, and then it's just within the room. You have your nice, clean five gigahertz that doesn't have to tra- travel through the walls, just right in the room. So you just put in a five gigabit dedicated Wi-Fi access point for every bedroom, every room in the house. <laughs> and, then, and then when you switch rooms, you just have to switch the uh, the name. 
If you're getting a router and you don't need a lot of range, the really cheap ones work fine. Yeah. True. I'm using – Greg, I am using Ubiquity. I switched to a um, a unit called the Amplify, which is a meshy network. That's I considered that one. I did consider that one. I don't think they had this Dream thing, uh, Dream Machine one at that time. So did you research what the difference was, Didi? Uh, well, I have – Besides you all, there are also geeks at work that are into Ubiquity. So I was looking at the, uh, the Unify and also the Amplify, which is the more home-oriented uh, line. And they have a new Amplify system, which looks really cool. Completely sold out, though. I, I was about to get that one when I realized it was sold out. They call it the Alien, and it is Wi-Fi 5. No, 6. Wi-Fi 6 which is 802.11ax, I guess. Um, <laughs> just sounds like we're making things up, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. We always have. There are aliens in dream machines and Wi-Fi 5 and 6 working together. When I, I picked myself off the floor of disappointment uh, when, I, when I realized that Ubiquity had one more thing, which actually combines several of their o- older products together. Uh, when buying into Unify, there's like... There used to be a, a cloud key part, a, a security gateway, uh, the actual switch, and um, something that actually does the, the wireless bit. But now it's all four in one in this little cute little white capsule that I'm staring at right now with a blue ring. So it handles all of them. Yeah. And uh, it has, so it has like uh, four uh, gigabit ports and. Yeah. Um, it sounds like it's time for me to upgrade to that system because I I've gone through multiple levels of ubiquity. I had the the long range access point thing, which was I, I was actually feeding Miles when we lived on the same property. That's where he was getting my network from, if you will. And then I bought into the Unify platform, which kind of is you know all of this is kind of compatible, but the software management piece of it doesn't see all the different pieces. And then I got the the one that I'm currently using, which. Yeah, it's it feels like I'm investing too much time in this, and I definitely feel like sometimes it's just time to get the money gun and just fire it away. So, are you happy with your dream machine? I it is a dream. It tells me that my experience uh, on the Wi-Fi is suboptimal in the bedroom, but I just think it's so many miles better that I'm just like smiles ear to ear. Greg, is this the kind of stuff you're talking about that we should all invest in? Um, yeah, the Amplify mesh that you're talking about or sounds like you're using um, is what I was thinking of. Um, One of the things that I think was really cool from them as a product bit is they had what they called the teleport, but it was a little hardware box, but now it's just a service. Um, For people traveling like me, it's like a plug-in VPN. Oh yeah, the Mm -hmm. VPN bit is really cool. Yeah. Basically meaning that you're at a hotel, you take a piece of hardware, you plug it in your computer, your computer thinks you're, or even to the Wi-Fi, your computer connects to that, and then it handles all the VPN connection for you right into your internal home network. Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. They had a, they had a little hardware dongle for it, but they've gotten away from that, and it's all software-based now. Yeah, I guess that's okay. Depends on how good the software is, right? I'm, I'm not sure I'll replace my VPN that I have up um, in DigitalOcean's cloud right now, because uh, that has other benefits for Netflix. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that you're running a, an instance in DigitalOcean, which is, by the way, how we host GeekSpeak website as well, um, that you can use as a VPN anywhere you want. So you start from that. That becomes your IP address, basically, when you're doing things. Yeah, it, it thinks I'm Canadian, like Greg. Mm-hmm. 
Didi, thank you for the update on that. I, I feel like I kind of want to know if the Dream Machine totally replaces... That's the one thing about Ubiquity that seems a little strange. They seem to have different classes of gear. And when you're in one class, the management software is really awesome, but it doesn't see gear from the other class. Yeah, and that's like, a little frustrating to me. Like Amplify doesn't see Unify. Right. And of course, the way I solve that is I'm using my Unify access points by plugging into my router directly and then... Yeah. I have two pieces of software to manage the two different networks, and they aren't the same network. Yeah. No, are you using one of their edge routers as well? I am using one of their edge routers as well. And my, so they've got a great little edge router. There's actually a show that where we really dove deep into that thing on, on Geekspeak. Mm-hmm. With Al. I'll link to this episode. Yeah, with, with uh, Alex. Uh, Alex. Really talked about it. Yeah. Um, and I do use that, and that's protecting my, um, my NAS, like my NAS devices, I've got two network storage devices connected to that. So only if you plug into the network do you see those. So the Wi-Fi network doesn't see those machines. And that's mostly because I've got teenagers and they're using different machines and I can't really trust their security level. <laughs> but I definitely want to open up some of those ports so that my kids can see the family photos and the family music. I just haven't spent the time to invest in that. That's the kind of stuff where it's I wish that I could like find someone like Alex Slius and just ask him to come here for a week and make everything beautiful. Did, did you put the Echo or the Amazon whatever Alexa and the Google Home on its own VLAN so it's not sending every packet into space? Yeah, no, they're not on their own VLANs. Um, th- basically, my Wi-Fi access point I think of as public, right? I don't. I don't consider that a private network at all. So all my smart devices are all communicating on one Wi-Fi access point. And I should probably fix that. But no, I don't block them from communicating. I don't know. If you take the Google Home or the Alexa and you start blocking what ports it can do, it can't answer questions. So, Well, if you go back to that show, I remember that one. I think Alex uh, figured out what things to block and found the interesting parts of like, oh, my, my doorknob is phoning home. And yeah, I think if I had like other pieces of hardware, smart home stuff, I would do that. Um, but the, what I was saying is the Alexa and the Google Home stuff is what I've got. It doesn't. I don't have any switches or anything like that. But you know, after talking with after talking with Alex about that, I basically decided not to put in locks and smartphones and stuff or smart light bulbs and stuff in my home because it felt like it's just too much invitation for silly antics to occur. Mm-hmm. Well, Didi, thanks for the update on the Wi-Fi stuff. I. I feel like I'm I'm going to have to do some investigating and, and move forward with new network as well for me. I've got to expand outside my home a bit so I can sit down by the river and enjoy network. It was a dream. <laughs> you sound like, are you being paid? Oh, <laughs> jig is up. <laughs> Miles, you recently played with new tech for web development. What'd you do? Well, I'm still playing with it. <laughs> it's uh Rust and the Actix web framework. So it's for a long time, I, whenever someone brought up a uh, compiled language, systems language for doing web development, I uh, looked at them like they were crazy. Um, because if you have something like Java or JavaScript and there's a bug, then an exception is thrown, you catch it, and you move on with your life. If something like that, if you wrote it in C, for example, or C++, there's a bug and your web server stops working. Yeah. Right? And so I was really you know, down on that type of thing. And then I came across this site that was saying, how fast are different you know, frameworks? 
and it, I was really just looking for, you know, how fast was, you know, Vue and compared to Angular ver- versus React or, or uh, Svelte. But uh, I noticed, oh, no, this is talking about backend frameworks. Oh, I wonder where Django is or I wonder where, you know, like uh, Node and Express are. And both of them were very low on that list. Uh, PHP was higher than I thought, but still not even cracking the top 10. Are we talking about performance? Yeah. Okay. And so then I look at, so what's near the top? And it was this thing written in Rust. And I knew enough about Rust to know that as a systems language, it does a lot to try to protect against, for example, buffer overflows or, you know, uh, memory access uh, bugs and the Mm -hmm. like. And, you know, if it was just a little bit faster, it's like, oh, then what's the point? Because, you know, it would be fast enough. But it was a lot faster uh, and a lot more memory efficient. You know, coming from the Java world where you start up an app server that does Hello World and you've already used up, you know, <laughs> half a gig of RAM. Yeah. Well, you know, Java's big. <laughs> Um, and JavaScript, you know, it ended up, or Node ended up being a lot better than that. And there you're only doing like, what, 150 megs of RAM? Uh, I guess a Hello World only takes about 75 megs of RAM. Yeah. It's no, it's smaller, but it is a virtual machine as well. So you, yeah. Right. And yeah, so I did my own little Hello World test with Actix and I'm like, wait a second, this can't be right. I'm using 1.6 megs. Smaller than most images. <laughs> right. When, um, when you say Actix, is it A-X? Uh, A-C-T-I-X. Actix. Okay. And this is a Rust. Now, I'm not totally familiar with Rust. I've heard of it, blah, blah. I've got a friend that's like totally thrashes whenever they want, whenever whenever somebody talks about it. But you're saying it's a systems language. Is it compiled completely to bytecode? I mean, what is it? Does it have an interpreter at all? No. Compiled to the processor. No garbage collector. Yeah. It's it's you in the metal. So why is it better than C? Because when you are making references, uh, one of the things that is always a problem with uh, C and C++ development is trying to track your pointers. Um, who controls the memory for it? Who, who owns that piece of memory? And then remembering to uh, free it after mm-hmm. you're done with it. Um, it's the source of... I think something on the order of like 75% of all bugs. Sure. And you just said that Rust doesn't have um, garbage collection, which Java and JavaScript both have. So right. what is it doing? But the compiler is enforcing pointer ownership. Okay. It's saying this pointer belongs to this section of code. Or, you know, like, oh, here's a borrow pointer. So this other section of code is going to borrow it so that it can write to this process. And then it's going to give it back give ownership back like you have these very strict ownership rules so it's kind of like types types uh, checking but instead of type checking you're talking about pointer reference ownership right and for the most part you don't even have to deal with uh having to do an explicit um the equivalent in c plus an explicit delete um most of right. the time it's just when it falls out of scope based upon how you structured your program only for things that you really do have to have longer lived. And then so, that gets a little bit more complicated. Okay. So what you're saying is that in the, the compilers understanding the language and language under, is set up such that when you're developing code, the reference to the memory is managed such that uh, the compiler sets up your removal of that memory or clears that memory for you. Well, it catches when you are doing something careless. 
kind of like what Apple's doing with Objective C in regards to you know Alec and Dialic automatically. Mm, no, because Objective C, even though that would you know Alec Dialic for you, there was still very much the possibility of having that memory leak of yes. of you know not freeing that memory or you know passing having one section of the of the code try to deallocate and another one try to do it as well mm-hmm. yep. and causing all sorts of problems those are the types of problems that rust is trying to get rid of okay um, it doesn't it's not a simple language like for example if i need to get something done very quickly on a web job uh d- despite my lack of experience with rust i would never choose something like rust for that uh, because a garbage collector really does save a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, having a language that goes like types, you know, YOLO, really does save a lot of time when you're trying to get something done quickly. Uh, but if you want to have a process that takes 1.6 megs of RAM and goes ridiculously fast, that's when you drop down, when you get past that point where the other languages won't do that for you. What about something like Go? Go is a, a really good language. Um, it has a slightly different paradigm. Uh, it It is made uh, – Go is a language that is made for the internet. Uh, it's made for concurrency and network operations or IO operations. Uh, and at the same time – while Rust still has very much a C++ feel to it in terms of how you structure and how it looks, Go is very much went down its own road. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not to say that it's a bad thing. Uh, in fact, it if you read many of the great concurrency papers from like 1978, uh, the Hoare uh, paper, for example – Go is like the language implementation of the academic paper from the 1970s. It was much more pure, I guess, in in some regards uh, with regard to that concurrency model, with regard to uh, concurrency and parallelism being treated as two separate things and in such a way that I am really not going to cover right now in a conversation. (laughs) I think we've already passed the point of no return on this conversation. We might need to slow down and and stop talking about languages. (laughs) So you've you've enjoyed optics in Python. I'm sorry, in Rust. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm trying to sum up. I'm failing visibly. (laughs) Um, And are you do you feel like you are going to tackle projects with it? Like what where is it suit your development needs? Uh, it's, this is going to go into the, the toolbox for, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good analogy of if all I need is, you know, if I can get something done with a hand circular saw, you know, and, and a hammer and, you know, just, you know, nail stuff, you can get a lot done with those. If all you had was a couple of clamps, a circular saw, uh, a simple hand saw, you know, hammer, screwdriver, you know, that type of thing, drill, mm-hmm. uh, power drill, you can get done, what, 75% of a lot of woodworking out there? Sure. But then there's going to be that time where that just doesn't cut it, where – the job may be so large that you just have so much that you need to get through that you really want to have a table saw. You really want to have that miter saw. You really want to have that, you know, that jigsaw. Now you're talking Lao's language. 
Yeah. <laughs> He's trying. <laughs> well, but I mean, like the, the a major, a, you know, table saw is a whole different yeah. you know, investment of time and effort. And but at the same time, if you know how to use that and you have a job that requires it. Yeah. Yes, you absolutely want it. Yeah, I, I don't know. That, the analogy is fine. The problem where it breaks down is that once you've got a table saw, you're very rarely grabbing the skill saw unless you're in a mobile environment where you need it, right? There's just things – once you get one tool that's really awesome, it becomes kind of the de facto tool you use in the shop. Do you think that's true with Rust? Because like you were just saying, it's not going to be a fast language I mean, to develop in. Like it's going to be – it's not easy. Any language that you spend a good deal of time in, you're going to get better at, you're going yeah. to get faster at. And it depends upon the types of tasks that you need to get done. Um, I mean, let's be honest. A lot of tasks are not reinventing some new algorithm. It's, hmm, let me connect this API to this API. <laughs> and let me do that a whole yeah. bunch of times and then charge people well, money for it. That's probably one of the major powers of Node in the JavaScript community environment where there are answers already implemented for most things. Right. And if it's just one of those types of things, Rust could work. Mm -hmm. But once again, you have a compilative, a compilative language. You need to worry about whether something is a reference, um, you know, a, a, you know, a something allocated locally on the stack or whether it's a reference on the heap, um, whether or not it's a, a shared reference going to someplace else. These are things you just don't have to worry about in a garbage collected language. Um, so if you have a task that really where I see Rust is uh, – or any language for that matter is the the more simple the language is for a person to use, you, know, like you should use that until you come across a case where it doesn't work for you anymore and then you need to step a level down and use something else that gives a little bit you – know, a few more dials, if you will. You want to use the highest level of abstraction available to you. Yeah, I absolutely want to use JavaScript and Node in a lot of places because it's I mean, when it comes down to it, really simple until it doesn't cut it because of like you may have some memory requirement. You know, like wow, this is taking up too much memory. I have something else that I want to get done on the server. I need to pare this down, or hmm, I'm getting a latency of you know, six milliseconds, I need to drop that down to two. All right. Well, cool. Thanks for the update on the tech you're currently playing with and geeking out on that. I appreciate it. I do kind of miss these conversations. I don't feel like I do them as much because we don't do geek speak like we used to do. Well, I've actually been going back and forth. I've been doing the, the systems level with Russ and I've been going the opposite direction, which is doing stuff in Blender, which is just completely conceptual. What are you doing in Blender? Uh, honestly, what I'm trying to do right now is just model my house. Why Blender? I started off with SketchUp. Yes. And SketchUp is a wonderful tool. So I learned how to do like, oh, make a box, extrude, scale, you know, do. And then I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I want to render this photorealistically. Oh, I want. And you can do that in SketchUp, but you have to pay money for mm -hmm. these plugins. Mm -hmm. And then you're tied into this, the implementation for this plugin to do such and such thing. And I had heard a long time ago about this whole Blender thing. And 
for years, like I would download a new version of Blender. I'd open it up. I'd see that cube in the middle of the screen and I would click with the left mouse button and nothing would happen. And I'd be like, right, this isn't for me. And I closed it down and I, I, I got SketchUp and went, oh, well, this is simple. I'll, I'll figure this out. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, learning SketchUp taught me a little bit more about 3D modeling. Mm -hmm. And then Blender came out with a new version 2.8 that revamped their UI so that the left mouse button actually selected instead of the right mouse button. <laughs> and, um, and so I just started going from there and I, you know, drew out the floor plan to, uh, to the house you know, just going, oh, yeah. let's start from there. And I've been watching YouTube videos like crazy. And it's just opened up this whole world of you learn a little bit about something and then you realize exactly how much you don't know. And so you learn a little bit more. And the Blender universe is so vast that no matter how much I learn, I feel like I've just learned about the hundred other things that I don't know for every piece that I've learned. But there are really great resources in that community. There are. And... Blender also has this aspect where I feel like if I learn it, I'm learning more of how something is made rather than just some tool that gets me there faster. Like mm -hmm. I feel like SketchUp is like that. It does a lot of things for you to get to modeling, but um, Blender does so many other things like, oh, I have a green screen. How do I fit someone into uh, a scene? Oh, I have want to do this animation. I want to rig a person walking. Oh, I want to... Um, you know, yeah. render something photorealistically. Like these are all options now that I just weren't options before. Miles is working on his uh, his craftsmanship during his pandemic projects. Yep, it's like having a lit degree when you're a programmer. It's like, yeah, I can program, but I can also spell. Don't you have a lit degree? <laughs> I do. Okay, uh, but, but I mean, it's it's that thing. Like you getting something that most other folks in your field don't have, it makes you like, oh, yes, I can program, but I can also make this really cool, you know, floor plan of the office for people to use as an internal map. You know, the uh, so the group that I'm with now at Netflix is working in the VFX space, the visual effects space, and so we're making tools for um, animators and for visual effects artists. And so all the dev developers around me all have all this history in blender and they, they know that space really well so you wouldn't be unique at, at my small group but it's true that they're unique to software development that's for sure greg you chuckled when miles was talking about uh modeling uh, your house and such do you do 3d models on the stuff you make um no we do occasionally do td or 2d um for what we call red line drawings which basically just show you how everything is connected to each other i meant in your personal creation process bike making and things like that um, no, I do most of that on paper. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm old school that way. Yeah, I can see that. So when you're, when you say you do it in paper, are you using, do you do, do you ever draft stuff out where it's perfectly, uh, you know, to scale and things like that? Or are you just sketching? Yes. Yes, you I do. Yeah. Uh, primarily I sketch things, but, uh, I do draft properly. Um, you may or may not know my actual training is in furniture design. I did uh, know that. Yeah, and so uh, that's where I learned how to do all that sort of stuff. And so, I was just making some furniture for my daughter. She's getting a snake for her birthday, um, a ball python. And so we need to kind of rearrange her room. And so I'm making a piece of furniture for her. It's last weekend I started. And then when I was sketching out, the first thing I do is just do a really good, like, like artistic drawing, if you will, of what it would look like in the room, see if she liked mm -hmm. it. And then I went to start 
making a model to figure out my cut list for plywood, how much things I need, basically how much plywood I needed um, right. and, and other wood that I needed. And I, I didn't want to go to the laptop. I'm on the laptop all day. So I grabbed the iPad and so I'm like, SketchUp's not there. So I wrote down pretty soon I was, I had a, a scale ruler in my hand, you know, the triangular ones with all the different scale ratios. And I was oh. just drawing it that way because yeah. it was so much faster. Exactly. It's faster. It's easier. And, and especially on something like made of plywood and wood, everything's straight and dimensional. And it's pretty easy. Exactly. I used to do everything in SketchUp and maybe I'll get back to that again. I don't know. I always just found it took me so much longer to do it that way. But then I do most of the stuff that I design lying in bed, you know, just thinking at night, visualizing it, putting the pieces together, so on and so forth. So when I actually get to putting something down on paper, it's basically designed. Ooh, well, la-di-da. <laughs> I know what you mean. I do that too. Um, yeah. I, I'm luckily, luckily I can do pretty good three-dimensional modeling in my brain. Like I can see objects yeah. and stuff and, and do that pretty easily. So you're sketching in bed. I'm watching memes in bed. Exactly. <laughs> Bed's an important place for being creative. You know, Didi, when you were talking about like the memes you want to do and stuff, like I'm not a TikTok person at all. And my kids are, of course. And it just reminded me that we're, I wouldn't say different generations, but definitely feels a little bit like you know things I don't know about how tech is used. Uh I feel like I'm about to like say that I'm like a, a weird cusper or something like in astrology, but I sort of ride the line between millennial and Gen X. I think the episode just ended. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Geeks Today. We're Miles Elam, Greg Merkley, and Dee Dee Hubbard. I'm Lyle Troxel. You're welcome to learn more about every episode of Geekspeak, of course, by going to geekspeak.org. And if you want to chat with us and hang out with us, we do have a Slack. You can get on that Slack by emailing me. I'm Lyle at geekspeak.org. Thanks for listening. Oh, and you know, go up on iTunes and subscribe to us and rate us because that actually does help, as you probably know, because, you know, you listen to podcasts. Here's a little bit more of the show in the post. What was the first episode you were on, Miles? Monday, September 25th, 2000. Oof. We talked about audio, computer audio. Why is that episode not on Geekspeak? Uh, because it was never uploaded and we, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, who's supposed to be working on the website again? <laughs> what year is it? 2000? 2000. Yeah, 2000, if you go to our site, it says offline. <laughs> No, it doesn't. It says mostly offline. 2000 does? So I've, the first episode that I have recorded of me hosting, which is the second show, Optical Drives. Ah, yes. And so why don't you, if you know what it was and how, have you, how do you know what it is and all that, and why don't you put it up, please? <laughs> <laughs> Remember that time where I took all those DVDs that you had or something like that and then made copies of it yeah. and did all that indexing, like how many episodes did we actually have? And Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's on my... It's on my local laptop. <laughs> okay, well, you first, first episode up. That, I mean, you're you're basically talking about like my first off episode is August of 2000. Your first episode is September of 2000. It, the first episode's got to be there. You got to put it up. It'd be great. Please, I probably should put up all of them, shouldn't I? Like, <laughs> you know what? Just do one. One is more than nothing. Oh, I see. Now, 2000 mostly offline and 2001 is completely offline. Yeah, I've got all the 2001s too. And then 2002 says some online. (laughs) 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 I'm very descriptive in that code. Uh, Ruby, I miss you. Yeah, I don't. You moved to Ruby on Rails and I'm like, I'm out. (laughs) 
I tried going to Django because when I was doing that, uh, Didi's like, oh my gosh, you got to try it. Is it the Django or Django? It's Django. You've done a lot of Django development, right? That's a Python backend uh, development platform? Yeah, I mean, I've done, I, I did a fair amount of both. Around the time that you were going to Rails, I had just done like tons of Rails and maybe I wanted to see something else. I just hate ORMs at this point. I just oh, yeah. can't stand them. Oh, yeah. That's the thing that really frustrates me. It was so useful. ORMs were object. Uh, what is it called? Object or object relational mapping. Yeah, yeah. yeah basically the, the programming environment maps the database as objects in the programming environment, which if you know much about databases is a really stupid idea. It's a stupid <laughs> idea. If you're just doing uh, a CRUD development, which is create, read, update, delete. It works fine. Right. You do something, a l- want to do something just a little bit different, like analysis or something like that. Things start breaking down quickly because an in-memory model for for development, which is programming, and a data serialization model, which is databases, they don't match up. Miles, in that September 2000 episode, we talked about sound. Why were you on? You don't know anything about sound. Oh. What are you talking about? We were talking about sound cards and like sampling rates and frequency. I bet you were really knowledgeable in that. I'd love to hear that episode. I wish I had it up online. <laughs> I, I, I likened the uh, sample rate to having a flip animation card. It's not subtle. That's not subtle, Lyle. <laughs> that wasn't subtle enough, TD? No. <laughs> Today's episode, Lyle is passive aggressive. Didi, the first episode that I see you on GeekSpeak is April 4th, 2003. We were talking about the Digital Arts Festival in Santa Cruz. I, I don't know if that, that actually equates to my first episode, because I feel like I would have been involved a little earlier than, than the year I graduated from Santa Cruz, but eh. I, you've given me a hard time before about waiting until you almost were leaving before having you on the show. <laughs> it was a little weird, because uh, uh, being being the the first or like the most remote correspondent, as as I was put for, for a couple of years there, it was, it, it was, it was like a... Dealing with like hearing yourself coming back and we included you, but you were on the East Coast when you went to to Tisch School. Yeah, that was challenging. Yeah, but well, now we're all remote. I, mm-hmm. I'd like to think that like it helped encourage you to go off to Danum. Actually, yeah, actually, your program I modeled starting up the Arts Research Program at at UCSC. I modeled after after the program you were going to Tisch because it got. Uh, excited about what you were doing and was like oh we can emulate that yeah but i i looked back through some of the episodes that are online so mm-hmm. don't don't bug me about it uh that i i, I remember uh fondly like uh i got to go to e3 when that was still a thing you could do uh as a small uh media outlet uh because of geek speak and yeah that was like 2005 yeah. You were actually the correspondent, right? You actually went there. They got to give you a press pass. You did the floor. You interviewed. We put up a whole bunch of stuff on that. Yeah. It was awesome. Did a couple of articles or whatever. You also, I remember really, you wrote, you built out a, a shuttle computer, like a small computer. Is that called shuttles? Yeah. The, the, and, that was when, like, I think now, like, the equivalent would be, like, if you got a NUC or something, those little, like, yeah. puck things. Yeah. They're, they're a little bit bigger than that. I mean, at the time, it was a little bigger than that, but... It was a nice machine that you could carry around. And I remember when we did LAN parties, you'd actually bring that with you. Oh, I miss those LAN parties. Yeah, me too. I mean, uh, maybe someday when you can game outside in the post-pandemic era. I don't even know what the games are now. I'm so out of touch. There's a yeah, thing called Fortnite. I've never played it, but I hear people talk about it. Are they still playing Fortnite? People are still playing Fortnite, yeah. 
I thought Red Dead Redemption was the big thing right now. Oh, I heard that's really painful to play because the interface is terrible. You know that uh, I I read an article, like one of the things about Red Dead Redemption 2 is that to talk to someone or to shoot them is like the same interface. The only thing that changes is if you have your gun out when you start the action. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Right? Hi, Jack. Oh, geez. Sorry, Jack. (laughs) Yeah, like you might be fumbling through, grabbing an item, and then you're like, oh, no, I just shot Sally. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, no, I haven't done games for a long time. My son is very into games. Um, he just graduated high school, and he pretty much all day plays games with friends. Oh, my God, your son graduated high school. That's, that's a weird thought. I feel old. One of the things that happens when you start thinking about 20 years of doing something is that it encompasses most of your life. You know, So this is, you know, since starting the show, <laughs> I now have children. I've been married twice, divorced once lost one of my parents it's a big life to be encompassed by a radio show about tech mm-hmm. i discovered that this is my 40th episode so i was able to get to 40 by 40 so there we go that's good are you 40 now <laughs> yes and you're a college kid right i thought you were a college kid uh when you met me yes <laughs> okay <laughs> now you're all just making me feel old I, you've been on more than 40 shows this database is not complete <laughs> Yeah, when we started the show, you what? You were just graduating from high school? <laughs> oh my gosh. It's terrible. Well, Ben was in diapers, wasn't he? Yeah, no, Ben Jaffe was in middle school. <laughs> yeah, we really must be toward the end now. We're decompensating. <laughs> we, we're deep on. <laughs> I, I feel like I want to do these more, though. Maybe I won't feel that way after two hours of editing, though.